Uh, we are starting a new series, uh, and so we're super excited you're here. It's been a great weekend. It's been a great weekend of college football so far, right? Yeah. And both teams won this week, so we can all be friends right now. And so, uh, and so we both beat up on the state of Florida, so because it's terrible, except for the beaches. So, uh, so we're glad that you guys are with us. And so, uh, this series, uh, we're going to take a look at some interesting things that happen in the Bible. But to start. When I was a kid, uh, we would go on vacations every year during the summer, as most people do, and we used to take two weeks vacations. And my parents' idea of vacation is we would travel. We've been in almost every state in the United States, so it was kind of these fat, you know, memories that I have. But the way we traveled was we would get in my parents' Bonneville. Remember Bonneville? Have you ever seen a Bonneville? And we would get in our Bonneville and we would drive everywhere. And I had an older sister who was kind of a jerk. And so uh, we would, uh, if we got tired, we'd go to sleep. She got the back seat. I got the floor with the hump. Remember the hump, you know? And so we would take these, you know, epic vacations and, and travel all over. And we'd go out west in different places. And one year we went out west and we went to the state of Colorado. And so we're in the state of Colorado. And I was, I was probably, I think at the time, like eight or nine years old. And we went to a place called Colorado Springs. And I remember, you know, kind of going into that and driving into Colorado Springs. And one of the first things you see when you get into Colorado Springs is a mountain. And it's a mountain called Pikes Peak. And I actually have a picture of it right here, I think. Yeah, so that's Pikes Peak. And so Colorado Springs kind of tucked down in there. Um, and it, I remember just thinking, like, that thing is massive. Like, I, I'd been to Tennessee and, and, you know, the mountains in Tennessee, so they want to call them, you know, they're mountains, but barely, you know. And so you, you get there and... and 14,000 feet. I mean, it was incredible. And so we decided that we were going to go to the top of it. Now, the good thing about Pikes Peak, if you're ever in Colorado, is you don't have to hike to the top of Pikes Peak. You can drive it. And so uh, we drove up to the top, and I remember being up there at the top and just kind of looking out and seeing this massive thing that we're on top of and just being in amazement at how big this thing was, how tall this was. When you look down, I mean, the city in Colorado Springs is a pretty good sized city. I mean, it just looks tiny in comparison to the height that we are. A couple years later, actually several years, several years later, uh, me and my wife, we were flying to Seattle. And, and if you've ever taken that flight uh, to Seattle or the West Coast, you eventually fly over the mountain ranges. And I remember like looking out and, and just seeing the, these almost endless, it felt like, just mountain ranges and how high they were and, and just being amazed that this is part of the world that we live in. And then me and Rusty, we are actually tomorrow getting ready to head down to Guatemala. We have a partner city down there, El Raparo, and, and, and we're going to talk more about that when we get back. But when we go to El Raparo, in between Guatemala City and El Raparo, where, where we spend the week at, there's a city called Antigua. And so we usually stop on the way back in Antigua, and that's a picture of it. And you can see there's this mountain, and it's the base of the mountain. Um, they call it a mountain. It's actually a volcano. Um, and if you actually look at the volcano on the right, see that little smoke coming out of it? That's because it's active. Yeah, they didn't tell us that when we were eating our steaks, you know, but uh, that's an actual active volcano. And, and so to stand at the bottom of that and to see that is unreal. I mean, it's just, it's huge. Now, if you've ever been uh, to a mountain or if, if you're adventurous, you ever climbed a mountain, I mean, you, you know that uh, kind of awe-inspiring as you stand at the base of it, as you see this thing and as you look up into it and just see with amazement and wonder and the mystery of a mountain. 
Now, we have all kinds of sayings and slogans. There's even a t-shirt that says, climb every mountain. A lot of us, because it's raining, maybe you wear like a North Face jacket. You'll never climb a mountain in your life, but you need a North Face jacket, apparently. And so, uh, you know, and so we have all these ideas about mountains. And you know, even in our last series, there's a song about a mountain and landslide and all this stuff. And so we have slogans and sayings. And it's easy to see why when you stand in the presence of something that so much bigger than you can even imagine, so much larger and grander than for anything that we've ever seen. And you start to feel a little bit small at times, you maybe even feel a little bit insignificant as you look up at this grand thing. Now, in the ancient world, what we understand about mountains is because they didn't understand the world the way that we do. And, and oftentimes, and you've seen pictures of this, especially like Mount Olympus and stuff like this, like the cloud line is actually below the peak of the mountain. And so they would look up at these, 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 these magnificent, mighty rock structures, and, and, and their understanding of the world was there was three kind of layers to the world. You had the earth as, as we know it, and then you had the cosmos, the sky above, and then you had whatever was below. And they believed that these mountains was a meeting place where the gods would meet Humans. It was kind of this meeting place of this high structure in, in the sky where the gods were. And even like in Greek mythology and stuff like that, we see where the gods actually live on top of the mountains. And oftentimes when people would walk up these mountains, they'd be met with thunder or lightning. We see in the Bible, sometimes it's even the small, still, gentle whisper. But either way, the belief was that if you could climb this mountain, if you could get to a certain point, then there's a chance that you might meet the gods, Or in the Bible, that you might meet God. And so myth and legends and all of these things start to form. So so when I was studying for the series last year and kind of thinking ahead about where we're going to go this year, um, what was interesting was what I found about mountains, I was kind of like in all of them and inspired by them and just kind of the thing. And we have all these sayings like climb every mountain and move the mountains and all these type of things. And we'll talk about all that. But one of the things I noticed was in the Bible when you read it, some of the biggest and best things that happen, happen on mountains. But also some of the hardest things that we see happen on mountains. Some of the great sayings that we've heard, some of the great sermons that we've heard, they all seem to happen on this high place where God and man come together and meet. In fact, one of the earliest stories that kind of gets this going, it's this story that will begin this redemptive pattern that we see in in the Bible. And and one man comes front and center in this story and kind of starts the story off, and it's a guy named Moses. Now, most of us have probably heard of of Moses or know some things about Moses. And and even if you haven't grown up in church, haven't spent much time in church, you're somewhat familiar with the story of Moses. And and so what we see is that Moses is this kind of fascinating person that has this life that's just unbelievable and kind of some of the things that happen. And so starting off in Moses' life, we all kind of know the story that he's, he's born and, and he's, an Israel, he's an Israelite. And at that point in time, we know that the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians. And, and so early on in his life, you know, there's this kind of epic narrative about him being born and then his mom's worried about him. So he, she puts him in a basket and sends him down the Nile River. And luckily, CPS was not called. And so uh, it becomes this kind of epic story. I mean, when you hear that story, you're just like, what just happened? And so she sends him down the river and the Egyptian princess finds him and, and gazes him and raises him as her own. And then later we see in the story that, that Moses, that he sees this Israelite slave kind of being beat and he's enraged by this. We're not even sure if he understood why he was enraged by this, but he, he kills this guy that was beating this Israelite and, and he's, he has to leave. He's banished. And so for 40 years, and this was the part that got me, for 40 years, he's out there as a shepherd. 
Now, now when I think about God, like I want God when he does stuff, I want him to move and move like quick. You know what I'm saying? Like we, we, we joke sometimes, we pray right before we come out and there's this joke because one week we prayed 20 minutes before the service and it was a terrible service, nothing worked, everything went bad. So we're like, prayer works for about five minutes. So we have to, you know, we, we don't really believe that, but you know, we, we always pray five minutes before. And so, uh, you know, so I want God to move fast. For 40 years, he's out here and he's the shepherd. And the life of a shepherd is a hard life, and especially where he's at, he's kind of in this desert region. And so for 40 years, he's out there and he's doing this. And then one day, he, he starts to go up in this mountain right outside of where he lives called Mount Horeb. And in this story, we, we're all familiar with it, that as he's climbing up this mountain, he sees this bush in the distance, and this bush is inflamed, and it's on fire. So he walks over to the burning bush, as we all would at that point, and, and there's this voice that comes out of the bush, right? We often read stories in the Bible, and we're like, oh, okay, yeah, there was a burning, burning bush. This is one of the weirdest things ever, right? Like, this is just, this is insane. But what you understand about this is, is that, and their understanding of this is that fire often represented that there was the presence of a God, or in their case, God was there. And all of a sudden, Moses kind of becomes aware of this thing, that this bush, and then he hears this voice, and, and he was a little freaked out, as you would be, and the voice tells him that he's on holy ground. Now, what I found fascinating about that part of the story is that holy ground was often a place where the presence of God is. And so I often think, was it always holy ground, and he just all of a sudden became aware of it because God was always in his presence, just like God's always in our presence, where we're always on holy ground. And so God, he calls out to Moses on this mountain and he tells him, hey, I got this idea, this thing that's going to happen and we're going to see it in Exodus chapter three. He says this, then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. And isn't that like enough sometimes just to know that if God exists, that he's aware of what we're going through? So I've come down to rescue them, come down to the mountain, to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians that led them out of Egypt and into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, sometimes you just make up the names, you don't really know how you say that, Hivites and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I've seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? It's a great question. Like, who is this guy? Like, who, who am I? And sometimes we say that. Like, we know God wants us to do things. The question's like, well, who am I to be able to do something like that? And so we know kind of in this epic narrative that eventually, you know, there's no point arguing with God. And so eventually Moses goes. And, and what's fascinating is this, and this is the fascinating part of the story, is he, he goes. And you got to remember, these people have, have had a certain life for the last 400 years. And, and so they've been enslaved, and it's been a hard life, and it's been a rough life. But in some ways, it's kind of become who they are and kind of who they believe that their future is even going to be. And so God, he has this moment with Moses where he sends Moses to go and rescue these people. But listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 6 when Moses goes to them. So Moses told the people of Israel what the Lord had said, but they refused to listen anymore. They had become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. It had been too long. 
They were in this place that some of us get into where it's been that way for so long that they couldn't even imagine a better future. They couldn't imagine that their circumstances could ever change because it's just been like this. It's been like this for so long. I mean, 400 years is generations of people growing up in this idea and in this world. Have you ever met somebody that's stuck there? Like, you know, you hear like this guy is sent and he's got this message for you and there's hope and there's prosperity and there's a future, but you just can't believe it because it's been too long. What's amazing about this story is even when they wouldn't, God would, and he did. And even though they couldn't see something better, God did, and he didn't give up, give up even though they did. And through a series of events that we've all seen in the Prince of Egypt and seen in movies, there's these plagues that come on, and, and at first, you know, Pharaoh is kind of resistant to them and all of these things, and eventually gets to the point we're going to talk about in a few weeks where eventually he lets them go. Now, after he lets him go, we see in the story that, that he regrets this decision because there's a part of his, his slave work. There's a part of what makes Egypt great now leaving. And so he pursues them. And in this kind of epic story, we see the Red Sea and it parts and it swallows them up and, and all of this thing. And it's just like this amazing, unbelievable kind of thing that happens. But God has rescued his people. He made a promise to Moses on a mountain. He said, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to use you. And something's going to happen. And then it does. It's such a great story. And so after this rescue, they're led to another mountain, Mount Sinai, which is actually Mount Horeb. And I don't know why the Bible doesn't just say one thing and stick with it. But it's actually the same mountain. And so they get Mount Sinai, and, and, and we see in kind of the story that, that Moses, again, walks up this mountain to meet with God. And when he comes back down, he has these two kind of plates. And on these plates are written the Ten Commandments. Now, when he walks down the first time, he sees that the people um, have started idol worship. So they took all their gold, and they made this, this cow and this type of thing. And so Moses, because you know, he's a dude, he gets pretty mad. He breaks the tablets, and God's like, you idiot, we got to do this again. So he walks back up. He gets a second. You don't know that part of the story. He gets a second uh, plate, and he comes back down. He's like, all right, these are the commandments of God. Now, what I love about this is you got to understand this from, from God's perspective. We hear the word commandment, and a lot of us, we, we go, well, of course, like the gods, that's what they do. They give us rules. And of course, why would we expect God to be any different? He's going to give us rules, and he's going to give us commandments. And, and some people have even gone as far as to believe that that's what this whole thing is about, is just you've got to follow the rules, and if you follow the rules, then you're good. If you don't follow the rules, you're bad. But you've got to understand the context, again, of when these things are given. And there's a question that, that I often ask when, when I do this. So when, when God gives these commandments, these, these rules to these people, does he give them the rules... Because if they follow him and follow the rules, then they'll be in relationship with God. Or does he give them the rules because he's already in relationship? And the reality is he's already in a relationship. I mean, he just saved them. He just rescued them. And you got to understand, too, that for 400 years, these people have been slaves. So they've been told what they do and how they do it and, and when they go to bed and what they eat and how they even can interact with each other. 
And so Moses comes along with these Ten Commandments, and these people haven't been free in 400 years. They haven't been free to choose who they're going to become. And so God wants to give them the best possible future, the best way forward, the new path. And he says, hey, so I'm going to give you some some basic ideas. Like if you're going to be in relationship with each other, if you're going to be neighbors, if you're going to be this community of people, like you probably shouldn't like steal from each other. You probably shouldn't sleep with each other's spouses. Like that's just a general good rule to kind of live by, right? And he says, and don't forget like who I am either. And so he's moving this story forward. It's like he's almost like pulling the people forward to move them into a new story, to move them in a new identity, to move them in a new way of what could be possible. And he's teaching them what it means to be human. He's moving the story forward. And finally, they're about to enter the promised land and a generation of people has actually passed. This is kind of the sad part of the story. The reason this generation of people has passed is because, again, they got stuck in the past and they could not imagine a better future. Because sometimes we're just stuck there. And so the book of Deuteronomy is kind of a retelling of kind of Israel's history and where they've been. And, and so Moses, he gets to this point, and we'll get to that slide here in just a second. And so, uh, yeah, thank you. So uh, Moses is kind of retelling them where they've been, but also telling them where they're going to go. Again, God wants to move us forward. And so Moses is kind of telling them this story, and there's this fascinating section that takes place in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and, and here we go, come up now. He says this, he says, when you are harvesting your crops, so he's talking to the people, when you're harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. And when you beat the olives from your olive trees, don't go over the bows twice. Leave the remaining olives for the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. And whether you gather your grapes in the vineyard, don't glean the vines after they are picked. Leave the remaining grapes for the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. Now there's something fascinating you have to understand about when when Moses tells them this through, through God, or God tells them this through Moses. They don't have crops yet. They don't have olive trees. They don't have vineyards. But they will. And it's like God is pulling them forward in the story and he's wanting them to to know, like, it's not always going to be this way. Like, there's a better future. You You just have to move into it. But when you move into it, don't forget. Don't forget that not everybody has been through what you've been through. Don't forget that not everybody has what you have. He wants them to believe that a better future is out there. But he also wants them not to forget where they came from because they were once the foreigners and the orphans and the widows. I love this verse. He says, the reason that you do this, the reason that you leave some behind for these people, and he says this, remember that you were slaves, verse 22, in the land of Egypt. Don't forget, you once would have given anything for someone to leave some grapes or some olives or some grains. There is a better future, and he's pulling them into it, but you have to remember there's other people that need the better future as well. They need the story that you've been invited into. Again, it's like God is like pulling them forward, like wanting them to believe in a better future to believe that something better 
is coming. That God is inviting them into this grander story. And you would think that that would be enough, like everything that they've experienced and everything they've went to. But, but we see kind of this pattern, even on the mountain idea, that over and over again, the people, they keep forgetting. And it, it's not got weird because we forget, don't we? Like we forget where we came from. We forget sometimes what God has brought us through. We forget what God has done for us. And God wants to keep us, just like he wanted Moses and those people, to keep moving forward. And we see this pattern kind of emerge in in scripture where it's like this reminder of like, yeah, this is where we've been, but also we're going somewhere. There's even this this famous line in the book of Amos, which I know for some of you didn't even know that was a book in the Bible, but it is. And so he says this, he says, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, do not seek Gagal, and do not journey to Beersheba. Seek the Lord and live. Now leave that up there for a second because here's what's fascinating. So I say to you, Bethel and Gagal and Beersheba, and you're like, yeah, I don't want to go to any of those places. That one has beer in it. That one looks kind of good. But the rest of them, I don't want to go to those places, right? Because you don't understand what those places were. But so let me tell you. So Bethel is the place where Jacob had this dream of this better future. And God actually tells him like, hey, your name's not Jacob anymore. Your name's going to be Israel. And through you, there's going to be this promise that's made and it's going to change people and eventually change the world. Now, Gagal is the place where the Israelites camped, you know, with God the first night when they entered the promised land. And Beersheba is where Abraham made a treaty with Abimelech. And it's kind of this place where he first kind of realizes that God is who God is. And so these three places, Bethel and Gagal and Beersheba, like these are really important places to the Israelites. These are really important places in the story of God. And so he says, seek me and live, but do not seek me in Bethel. Do not seek me in Gagal. Do not seek me in Beersheba. Now, why would God tell them not to seek them there? Because that's the past. And we're moving forward. You won't find God in the past You find God in the future. You find him moving forward in the story. His name was not I was. His name, as he tells Moses, is I am. And if we obsess over what God did last, sometimes we'll miss what he wants to do next. And so he tells the people, he says, don't seek me in the past. We can remember those stories. We can tell those stories. We we can know that I'm trustworthy because of those stories. But he says, that's not where I'm at anymore. And so go ahead and build your altars to mark your holy moments. But the purpose of an altar is to remember God's faithfulness in the past so we can believe in the future of what he's going to do next. At some point in our lives, most of us, we stop living out of imagination and we start living out of memory. And God wants us to change that. He wants us to believe in a better future, to believe in something new. It's fascinating when you think about the Bible, not only do we see all these stories on mountains, but we see this reminder over and over again of God that he's making things new, that he's doing a, a new thing, a new work. In Isaiah chapter 43, the Israelites, they find themselves in this tough spot again. And so at this point in the story, like, there's all kinds of crazy stuff that have happened that we'll talk about here in a few weeks. But, but here's what, what, what Isaiah says to the people. He says, this is what the Lord says. 
It was he who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together. So he's tapping in. In fact, if you study Isaiah, what you'll see is there's a lot of Deuteronomical, which is throwing back to Deuteronomy, kind of ideas that keep emerging because he's wanting to remind the people again of where they've been, but also where they could go. And so he says, who drew out the chariots and the horses. So he's tapping into the story of Moses and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Now here it is. Forget the former things, do not dwell on the past, for I am doing a new things. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Now the language he uses here, what's fascinating is what he's reminding them of is this. Egypt has been gone. They've been gone. They're not coming back. That battle has already been fought. And over and over again, we see he has to keep reminding them over and over again of what's happened so that they can move forward. Because here's the reality that they live in and here's the reality of some of us live in, right? You cannot step into the future until you stop fighting ancient battles. And he says, they're gone. Remember when I did that? They're God, and they're not coming back. And so you need to know that something new is happening. One of our biggest spiritual problems I see is this. We want God to do something new, but too many of us just want to live in the past. We, we want to offer God something new, but we want to hold on to what was. Jesus says it this way. It's like you're asking for new wine, but you keep offering old wineskins. You want God to do this in your life, but you want to give him something that can't even contain what he's willing to do. And I think we all find ourselves in these seasons. One of the most common weights I see people carrying is the weight of the past, the weight of yesterday. And what if God wants to meet you? Maybe on a mountain. Maybe not a physical mountain, but like this mountain of this thing that you see in front of you, this what you think is insurmountable thing, this hard thing you're going to face. And God wants to meet you there and he wants to pull you forward, not into what he's doing, but into a new possibility and a new future for you. The beauty of the story of grace that we see unfold in scripture is that history does not determine your destiny and your failures do not frame your future. There's this one guy that's going to write all these letters later. His name's going to be Paul. And, and Paul's going to have a lot of influence on the way that most of us think and think about God. And, and here's what he says in Philippians. He says this, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Like even Paul is like tapping into this ancient story that started so long ago. That Listen, the past is what it is, but we have to move forward. And Paul understood this because just like many of us, Paul had a dark past. And he realized he couldn't keep fighting the battles that had already been won. He has to move forward because God is moving forward. And so we make our altars if we have, but we don't live there. Now I realize for some of you, when you hear us talk like this, you might be thinking, well, I don't have any battles from the past. Like we, you, you, you do, but you just don't recognize them. You don't have an Egyptian army chasing after you. You don't have that, you know, but, but we all, we all have our pasts. You know, one of the subtle killers I see in a lot of people, and they don't realize this, is the way we carry the past. 
So maybe it wasn't some epic battle in the past that you need to move forward from, but, but sometimes what keeps us from moving the, the for, story forward is, I mean, how much energy do some of us spend wishing things were the way they were? They're not going to be. It's the past. And so we can celebrate how good it was, right? You, you ever met somebody that's like my age or maybe older, and they just want to keep talking about how good they were in high school, Right? <laughs> And you're like, yeah, that's gone. You can build your altar, but it's gone. It's the past. And sometimes it's hard things. Like some of us, it's the loss we've had in the past. And so if you need to grieve about what's happened, you grieve, but you move forward. There's a certain kind of despair that I've seen that sets in in certain people when they believe that their best days are behind them. And they don't tap into the narrative that we see that God keeps reminding us of that, no, your best days may still be ahead. Sometimes the problem is we're holding on too much to the past to have our hands open to what God is going to give us in the future. Our arms aren't free to embrace what's ahead. And so God meets Moses on this mountain and he starts this story and he says, so this is how it's going to go, but it's not going to end. It's going to keep going. And so you can remember what's happened, but there's infinite possibility ahead. You are not the sum of your past. You are so much more. You know what's amazing about us as humans? We are the infinite possibility of the future. And so what could God do with your future? What does God want to do with your future? One of the ways we say this, and you probably get tired of me saying it around here, is we don't worry so much about the steps you've taken. It's the next step you take that's the most important. Where did we get that from? Well, we got it from God. So what could God do with your future if you were willing to be open to it and to offer it? One of the things that I find fascinating about mountains is when these people, they climb the mountains, their, their original intention is they're climbing the mountain because they believe that eventually if they get high enough on the mountain that, that they'll actually be where the gods are. But what I find fascinating about the story in the Bible is what we see is when these people climb the mountain, what they quickly realize is that God is also willing to meet them. So maybe what's so fascinating about mountains is it's not just a place where we go to meet God, but it's also a place where God comes down to meet us. And so what could happen with your future if you were open to the fact that God wants to meet you and do something with you and through you? And so all month long, we're going to take a look at these stories, the good ones, the bad ones, the hard ones, and to believe that a better future is possible for all of us. Let's pray.